today. Um, so we want to encourage you guys to do that. I think we have pictures up there. Yeah. So I told you last week um, that we were able to send some extra funds and money to Uganda um, to help them with, with food, just really some of the basic things of life that they're already having a hard time uh, coming by. And uh, so this is four of 30 pictures and some videos that Pastor James sent us of people receiving uh, the food and the help that we had uh, given them. This week, I think we're going to be able to send them uh, some more money uh, to help them dig a well. So if if you know anything about um, sort of these third world countries, um, clean water is a huge deal and it's become even harder to come by for them during this time. And uh, so we're going to be able to, to drill a new well out there for them, and it's going to be close to an elementary school. It's going to be for the whole community. Um, so it's really an exciting ministry that we get to do. So I just wanted to kind of tell you, these are some of the things that we get to do um, during this time, and you guys have been faithful um, during this time to help us do these things. Um, so I wanted to kind of give you that update. We could celebrate that together. <clears throat> He's going to talk about it later, Pastor Jared will. You'll be signing up to serve at Friends of North Richmond. Uh, you'll be signing to, uh, or we're going to start taking up um, canned foods and, and uh, um, there's a phone that's playing? There's <laughs> a phone that's playing right here. Um, we'll be taking up canned, go- canned foods and uh, non-perishable food items. Um, so I wanted to uh, remind you about that. You can start to do that. I think we're going to start doing that next week also. So really during the month of June, there's going to be ways for you to serve. And I want to encourage you with that. Our ladies ministry is coming back online. They'll have activities uh, coming up in ministries and events here in June and July. Refuge is already meeting. They're meeting here on Tuesdays. Uh, Sanctus is going to start meeting again. So there's lots and lots of ways for you to kind of get plugged back in as we get into the groove of things, hopefully. Um, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We've been walking through Hebrews, and and I think I told you a year ago um, that the Lord started to kind of impress on me that we needed to be in Hebrews because your pastor's obstinate and didn't want to start in it. We we probably should have started last September, to be honest, if I was going to be obedient, but we started in January, Um, so we're here now. And one of the reasons it's it's just a, it's a tough book. It's a tough book not only to read and understand, it's a very difficult book to teach through. Um, and there is so much um, that I feel like we're sort of doing it a disservice. We're, we're flying through it so quickly. There are just huge portions of this text that I would love to stay in. Um, and I feel like we probably ought to, but we just don't have time. This is going to be one of those texts today, okay? So we are going to fly through about 10 or 13 verses um, today, and you're going to get a lot, um, hopefully, from what the Lord has to say to us today. So I want to remind you that the book of Hebrews is written to us for two different reasons. One, to remind us that Jesus is amazing. He's better than. He's the most incredible thing in the universe, the most incredible person in the universe. He deserves all of our praise and affection and glory and worship and et cetera, et cetera. And it's also written to encourage us to hold on to him and to persevere, to not let go when faith gets hard, when life gets difficult, and our temptation is to let go and try life a different way. Hebrews is encouraging us, reminding us, hold on, persevere. So we're going to get two um, of those kinds of encouragements today. Um, One's going to be from a negative perspective, a very heavy warning Um, And the other one's going to be a positive perspective. So we're going to kind of look at it in those two ways um, as we go through the text today. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, says, uh, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this first part of this text, these five verses are heavy and they're hard. I would say they are an expression of the anger of God. And when we talk about the anger of God, many of us struggle. We don't like to think about God being angry. Our theology, a lot of us can't handle an angry God. Um, We don't know what to do with it. And so we struggle with this. And then we think about, you know, telling other people about God, um, people that we love that we want to see come to Jesus. And we're like, you know, man, this whole anger of God thing is a real turnoff. Why do we struggle with it so badly? Why do we struggle with this concept of God's anger? And I'm going to run through some things that I think shed some light on why, why we struggle with it and then hopefully why we need to embrace it. First thing, it conflicts with our understanding of love. We have this understanding of love, and especially in God, that God can't love us and be angry with us. That somehow or another, God's love is so strong that it would preclude anger. It's as if you can't love someone and be angry with them and let them feel the full effects of their choices. And I would argue, at times, that's the best kind of love. That you can love someone and be angry at their choices and let them feel the full effects of the choices that they make. Sometimes that's love. That's the very definition of love. But some reason, we're not allowing God to have that kind of love so that his anger can exist, coexist with his love. We have a poor concept of the justice of God. This is the second reason. Conflicts with our understanding of love. We have a poor concept of the justice of God. Listen, God is just. If God has declared that the punishment for rejecting him and rebelling against his son is death and the eternal effects of that death in a place called hell, if that's what God says, it's because it's part of his character. Justice doesn't demand that God act a certain way. God's character includes justice, and that compels him to act a certain way towards sin and evil. Some of us have this understanding about God's justice as if it exists outside of him, as if there's some written rule of justice that God has to adhere to. And it is the other way around, and we need to understand this and adopt this big view of God. God is just. And it is his internal justice that compels him to act against sin in a particular way. There's nothing outside of God making him do that. It's his own character and nature that causes that. Next thing, the reason we struggle with anger, it confronts our gospel. Many of us have a poor understanding of what the gospel really is. If I were to ask you, what are you saved from? 
What does the gospel of Jesus, the work of Jesus Christ, what does it save you from? You might say sin. You might say hell. You might say the effects of sin. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they're just part of the truth. Maybe each one of them might be 20% of the truth. Because we have a poor understanding of what we're saved from, we struggle with the anger of God. You need to ask yourself these questions. When Jesus says that he came to pay a ransom for people, who did he pay that ransom to? When Jesus drank a cup, and he didn't say, let this cross pass from me, did he? He said, let this cup pass from me. What was he talking about? What was the cup that Jesus had to drink from? Because we have a bad understanding and our gospel is poorly constructed, we struggle with the idea of God's anger. I also think that it exposes our absolute dependence on grace. This idea that we're going to stand in front of God, who doesn't ask us for anything, can be terrifying to some of us, or it should cause us to fall on our face in thankfulness that he chose to save any of us. Some of us, it's terrifying that we are not going to stand in front of God and he's going to say, okay, make your case for being here. Show me how good you were. I might let you in. God is not going to do that. And for some of us, that's a horrifying thought because we really think that we're going to get there someday and if I can just make my argument, he'll let me in. I did some good stuff. I tried really hard. I went to church a lot. And God, if you'll just take a little bit of time and and hear me out, I can argue you to let me in. And for some of us, it's a terrifying idea that that's not the way it's going to go down because that ain't grace. God has a burning anger against sin and evil. So now we're stuck with, man, is God just perpetually in a bad mood? Right? And we struggle with this. We have this very bad understanding of the Old Testament. And we think God's just this curmudgeon you know, grouchy Scrooge character in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes, and now God's really nice. Like, this is kind of what some of us have in our heads. You, you have to really struggle with these kinds of verses in the New Testament then, because this is New Testament God. This is New Testament Jesus. So we're like, okay, well, is God just always in a bad mood? He's just perpetually angry with everyone. We kind of see God as like Jonas Jameson from the Spider-Man movies. The, the, the newspaper guy, he's angry at everybody. He just yells at people all the time, you know? And that's kind of our version of God. He just can't wait to yell at somebody and tell them how stupid they are, right? Here's what God, you have to understand what God's anger and God's wrath is. What is that? It is God's settled anger and offense toward those who violate his will. I would say against, it's against all evil in general. God is angry about it, and his wrath must be poured out on it, and it is settled in his character. There's no, God doesn't weep as he pours out his anger and wrath on evil. It satisfies his character, and we really need to wrap our minds around that and not be afraid of it. It's not such an offensive idea if you count God as being perfectly holy and good and righteous. And if you count yourself as being the chief of sinners. This is why we struggle with the wrath of God and the anger of God, because we do not count ourselves as being the chief of sinners. Jeffrey Dahmer is the chief of sinners. He's really bad. Trump 
Oh my gosh, chief of sinners. The fourth grade bully who punked me around and messed with me all the time, that kid was evil. He's the chief of sinners. This idea that God is angry towards sin is not so offensive if I understand that he is perfectly righteous and holy and I am the willing recipient of his anger because I am the chief of sinners. How many of us would write a note to our friends and say to them, I'm the chief of sinners? And that's exactly what Paul did, didn't he? Paul, the author of two-thirds of the New Testament, writes, I'm the chief of sinners. That's why he's so enraptured by the grace of God, because he understands who he really is without God. If God is not perfectly holy, he should overlook our sins. Do you guys understand that? Because if God isn't perfectly holy, he's just a flawed moral being like you and I are. And if God is flawed the way you and I are, then he should just look, overlook our sins. Man, I get it, dude. It's hard. I've done some dumb stuff too. Come on in. That's what he should do. If God is not perfectly just righteous and holy, he should overlook our sins. If he is perfect in every way, he must act against evil. Grace is when God acts for us instead of acting against us. And we deserve him acting against us. That's why grace is so amazing. Because it is God reversing the equation where he acts for us instead of against us. Grace has real deep meaning when God is perfect and we are sinners. So is God always in a bad mood? Absolutely not. I would say the opposite is true. God is perpetually happy. And everything that he does is designed to bring him happiness and to share his happiness with me and you. His joy, his contentment, being close with God. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen. That's God. He is eternally happy, and he wants to share that happiness with you. Your sin and your rebellion against him precludes it. It makes it an impossibility. So do we really understand what we're talking about here, that only a righteous God should be worshiped? We shouldn't worship any other version of God unless he is perfectly righteous, good, and holy. Only a righteous God deserves our worship. Only a God who is disgusted and angry at sin could make it possible for sinners to worship him. Do you understand that also? If God isn't disgusted with your sin, if he's not angry at your sin, if he doesn't want to pour his wrath on your sin, he is not motivated to do something about your sin. He wants you to be near him. And one of his chief motivators to get rid of the sin in your life is so that you can be close to him. And his anger burns against your sin. And without him, his anger burns against you and I. And we are the objects of his wrath. God has to do something to take that away from him. Ephesians 86, 15, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, and so many other verses. The book of Jeremiah, they only make sense if God is a holy, just, perfect God who burns with anger against sin. What is the big deal about God being long-suffering and patient and kind and good if he doesn't care about my sin? If he's not 
perfectly offended by my sin and my rebellion against him. Why do I bother to praise him for being long, patient, suffering, and kind? It's exactly because he is perfect, holy, and just, and his anger burns against my sin, that I praise him for not squashing me like a bug, for not just getting rid of me. That's why his grace is so amazing. I don't want you to skip over this part of the gospel. It is a crucial piece of God's character, and it is central to the gospel message. John Piper said it this way, the love of God provides escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the glory of God in forgiving sinners. That's the gospel. I'll say it again. The love of God provides escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the glory of God in forgiving sinners. That's the gospel. You cannot take the wrath and the anger of God out and still have a gospel message. It is necessary to what we celebrate when we come together. That's just verse one, by the way. Okay, next set of verses. <laughs> it talks about a person who is the object of God's anger and wrath. How is this person described? I'm just going to run through what the scripture says. It says they go on sinning deliberately. They go on sinning deliberately. They have settled into sin. They're not involved with the body. They're not encouraging other people to do good works. They're not doing the good works of a believer. They are seeking ways to sin, and they sin with gusto. They have given themselves to sin. Secondly, there's no sacrifice for this person. If you reject the effective sacrifice of Jesus, there is no other option. Third thing, they have completely rejected who Jesus is and what he came to do. They treat him and his work like garbage. That phrase in there where it says that they have trampled the Son of God under their feet, it is the idea that there is trash on the ground and you just walk right over it. They are treating the work of Jesus as garbage. They treat the death of Jesus like any other death. Just like anybody else dies, Jesus died. It's not special, and it has zero consequence in my life. The last thing it says, and I think this is terrifying, says they insult the Holy Spirit. That's who is being talked about here, who is the object of the wrath and the anger of God. Now, we really want to know, who is this person? Could I be this person? Is this person saved? Is he talking about somebody who's saved and now they're not saved? Who are we talking about here? Man, I don't have time to really kill this, but I'm just going to run through some stuff, okay? I would contend that this person in chapter 10 is the same kind of person we looked at in chapter 6. These are people who have heard the gospel and they have made some kind of an emotional response to it or intellectual response to it. I like that. I agree with that. I like being around God's people. I like being around stuff about God, spiritual things. I like Bible study to some degree, you know? I like the encouragement that comes from being around Christians and around godly things. They have made some kind of an emotional response to it. Don't have time, but look at Matthew chapter 13. There's a parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the sowers, the sower and the seed. Not often does Jesus explain his parables, but he explains that one very clearly. There's one seed that falls on the ground, and it takes root, but what happens to it? It gets plucked up. 
It gets removed. I would say Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10 is that person. That somehow or another the gospel kind of got into them. They've kind of liked what they've heard. They begin to live a little bit like a Christian might want to live. You know, they see other people doing it. But it never gets deep into their souls. Verse 29 says that someone's been sanctified. You can understand it in one of two ways. He's either talking about Jesus. Jesus died on a cross, and because of what Jesus did, he was sanctified by God, set aside for God's holy work, etc. Or you can say, this person has heard the gospel, responded to it, liked it, enjoyed it, responded to it a little bit. There's an initial confession of faith. They've been set aside by God as God continues to work in them. But here's the deal. They are unbelievers. Now, this is what this means. This means that there are unbelievers every week in this room singing, listening, fellowshipping, and serving. They have been set aside, and they're receiving some of the same blessings of the gospel that believers are, but they are not saved. For some of you in this room, this ought to be a terrifying text when I just said that. Verse 39 We haven't read it yet. We're going to read it. It only talks about two groups of people. There's people who didn't make it. They failed. There's people who persevered. There's not a third group. Those of us, those who used to be around and they're not anymore. Those who were Christians and they're not now. There's just two groups. Those who are believers and those who are not believers. That's it. What happens to this group of people? God's judgment. They're consumed by fire. There's a worse punishment for them, which I don't even want to know what that is. And God's vengeance, his wrath is poured out on them. That's just these first five verses. I have six minutes. That's laughable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna sh- to tell you the big takeaways from this first part of the text, okay? First of all, Jesus has been given the right to rule and judge, and he's going to avenge his name. Revelation 19.15. Some of us are excited about Jesus coming back. Some of us should be terrified because it says that Jesus says... I have come to avenge myself. I have come to avenge my name. Jesus has been given the right to do that, and he's going to come take full rule and right to that someday. Secondly, God's holiness and justice ensure that you can be saved and spared God's wrath. Since he required a sacrifice and Jesus paid it, God is just to make sure that Jesus' holiness is given to you forever and cannot be taken away. Here's what that means. If I go to the store and I buy a, a Snickers bar and it's 79 cents, my son Jordan's with me. He wants a Snickers bar. We want the same Snickers bar. We're just going to take the same one. The clerk can't charge him another 79 cents for that. I paid the price. That would be unjust, unfair, unethical, immoral to charge him double for the same thing. Jesus has paid the price for your soul. There's no other sacrifice. There's nothing else that you need to do, can do. And it would be wrong for God to expect you to pay anything else. That would be unjust. And it is justice that ensures that you will get every benefit that Jesus has already purchased for you. Does that make sense, guys? So don't be afraid of the anger and the justice of God. They're huge motivators to make sure that you and I get exactly what Jesus bought for us. Amen? Amen. Big stuff. Third thing, stay as far away from Hebrews chapter 10, these verses as possible. Don't let these things ever describe you. 
Don't let them ever be the descriptor of your spiritual walk. Stay as far away as possible from these things being a descriptor of you. Because the author is warning you that if you walk away from Jesus, if you walk away from salvation, there's no hope for you. Fourth thing, the person who turns to Jesus in repentance and confession and you're confident in grace, even if you go to a lifetime battle of the flesh and sin and the devil, that person who accepts Jesus Christ and what he's done and turns to him for grace over and over and over again is saved. You are not, your salvation isn't determined by, marked by the, the, the magnitude of your struggle with sin. Some of you are convinced that because you struggle with sin, you're not saved. I would argue the opposite. The very fact that you struggle with sin is an indicator that you're saved. The person who accepts sin as being normal and as being a part of who they are and defining of who they are, that's the person I go, ooh, I don't know if you know Jesus. Don't be afraid of the sin struggle. Matter of fact, that's what grace is all about. Certainly saving us at some point in the past, but then giving us daily grace as we struggle. Guys, that makes sense? Fifth thing, fear the Lord for his wrath. Come to Jesus who took all of it so you don't have to and praise Jesus for his mercy and grace and his sacrifice. That's the negative. What's the positive? Verse 32. He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you will need, or for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive that which was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul, preserving of the soul. We have to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. The mature Christian struggles with his lack of holiness. Man, I would say it this way. As your knowledge of God increases, your knowledge of your sin increases. When you first got saved, you probably weren't even aware you were sinning. You were just glad that Jesus saved you from hell, you know, at that point, you know. You have no idea that some of the things that you're doing are very dishonoring to him, very displeasing to him. So you probably sin less not you're sinless, but you sin less than you did then, but you're much more aware of your sins, right? The things that we do now and the love that we have for Jesus now, we're very aware of when we offend him. And that can cause our consciences to go, oh, you're probably not saved. You probably really don't know God. There probably is really no hope for you. You'll never overcome jealousy. You'll never overcome bitterness. You'll never overcome fear. There's really not hope for you because, man, you've been saved all this time and you still struggle with stuff, right? Our consciences tell us those things. We have got to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. We have to trust to the end that what he has done on the cross is completely powerful enough to take away our sins. And there is a day when that'll happen. We're in the waiting, the in-between period, right? Where he saved us from the penalty of our sins, but we still wrestle with the, pr the power of sin, don't we? There's going to be a day when he takes the presence of sin away.
But we're in that middle period right now. Okay, so the mature person begins to understand that. The immature person never falls in love with Jesus, never jumps into the depths of who God is and what Jesus has accomplished. The immature person thinks that rituals and church attendance and prayers and devotionals can make them clean or can make them cleaner to get in front of God. That's the immature believer. We have to trust in Jesus and what he's done and not anything else. Anybody ever run a marathon in here? Any marathon runners? I'm convinced the only reason people run marathons is to say they ran a marathon. <laughs> Tell everybody else I ran a marathon, because otherwise it is stupid. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I've never done it, and I am not going to do it, right? I understand from those who I've talked to <laughs> who've done it that around mile 20 or 21, there's something called the wall that you hit this wall, and basically what's happening is your body is running out of energy stores. You have depleted everything, like the fat in your body, everything else is, you've just depleted it, and your body is saying, stop or I'll die. And it's literally sending you these warning signals that I have to quit. I can't keep going on. This is too hard, and if you push me any farther, you'll die. Now, you probably won't, right? But you certainly feel that way. And every stretch of your body is like, quit. Some of us are at this point in our spiritual walks, aren't we? And we've been following Jesus for 30 years. We've been following Jesus for 15 years. And it feels like forever. And I still struggle. And I still hurt. And the pain of life is still overwhelming. And I just want to quit. And our flesh is crying out to us, let go. Stop. It's not worth it. Whatever's at that finish line isn't worth going to, man. You need to just quit. There's got to be a better way. What I want to encourage some of us this morning, and I want to end with this, is this. Hold on to Jesus, man. Keep walking with him. Get as close to him as you possibly can. And just look as full in his wonderful face as you can. And know and trust that Jesus is is enough, and he's done everything to be enough for you, and he will see you through to the end. If you've got to crawl, if you've got to hold on to his leg like a little kid and let him drag you, if you have to roll on the ground, whatever, get as close to him as you can and keep going with him. Don't give up. We have to trust him. Do we see what's at stake here? I mean, are we really reading this text and understanding what it's saying? Some of us think that Look in verse 26, it says for, which means because. So he's talking about what he just talked about. So we'd have to go back and look verses like 25, 23 through 25, I believe. What did he just talk about? You know what he said? Go to church. That's what he just said. Go to church. Encourage each other. Build one another up. Spur one another on, which means get under their skin and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why? Because if you don't, somebody's going to end up in this next set of verses. Somebody's going to give up. Somebody's going to quit walking. Somebody's going to taste the gospel and walk away from the gospel. This is what's at stake right now. Not church attendance and not singing and making the pastor feel good or Pastor Jimmy feel good because he can hear you sing or, you know, high-fiving each other or, or, you know, loving each other's, you know, new dress or showers and makeup and we smell good. Like, what are we doing when we come together? This ought to radically transform why we do what we do. 
that we come together to ensure that people don't fall away, that people continue to the end. This is what's at stake here, and it ought to radically change why we gather, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our life groups, for coffee, on a Zoom meeting, whatever it looks like. It should radically change why we do what we do. I think this text is for three people. Pastor Jimmy can come on up. We're going to end it. I think the text is for three people. First of all, there's a person in this room and you are lost. You don't know God as your Savior and you know you don't know God as your Savior. You're playing around. You know you're a lost person. And here's what I would say. This word that I'm reading this morning, it's for you. Here's what you get. Judgment and wrath. Or you can have faith and forgiveness. It's for somebody in this room this morning. And you need to hear that. And you need to cry out to God for mercy through Jesus Christ and accept what he has done on the cross for you to get you to God. Second person, there's an unsaved church person in here. You look like the rest of us. You know a lot of the words. You know a lot of the things to say. You've been playing the game for a long time. And you think you've got mom and dad fooled and you've got your spouse fooled. But you know what? None of us hold the keys up there, guys. You're not fooling anybody. God knows. There are some of us in this room, we've got to quit playing around. We've got to quit playing around. Your soul's at stake. There are eternal consequences to what you do with Jesus Christ today. Things that matter and affect you forever. What you choose to to do with Jesus has eternal consequences. Quit playing church. Nobody's impressed. Quit playing church. Quit rejecting Jesus. Come to him in sincerity and in faith and throw yourself on him once and for all. I would say this, there's a believer in the room, follower of Christ. You want to grow up, you want to mature, you want to have a faith that can stand strong and be unshakable. Here's what I want to tell you. This text tells us that we can be sure when we make choices every day that we can honor the Lord and worship him because Jesus has guaranteed that we will be forgiven, that we'll be with God. We're going to be perfected forever one day. We're going to live with him. But there is a daily grind to it, guys. There's a daily grind to this walk with God, and it can wear you down. It can wear you out. And it can be the thing that will keep you from finishing to the end. So what I would say to you is, man, let's live this life by faith. This text is pushing us. We're going to get into in two weeks, chapter 11. And we're going to spend the summer there talking about faith and what does this look like? Because I'm just this broken, weak person who doesn't know how to live like that. How can I do that? What does it look like? And we're going to spend the summer kind of exploring what that life looks like. Live by faith. Trust in him. Jesus is working for you. And you know what else this text says? He's coming back for you, man. He is coming back for us. His work's not done. His work's not finished. He's working for you now, and he's coming back for you to complete the things that he has begun in you. Let's stay as close to him as we can. Go back to the middle of chapter 10. Draw near to him. Draw near to Jesus. Stay as close to him as you possibly can. Draw near to him as you walk out of this place. Don't you dare come in here and think that I drew near to Jesus and now I go six and a half days without him. No. Draw near to him every day. Every day. Every choice that you make. Every time you sin, don't go away from him. Draw near to him. 
draw near to him and keep walking with him in faith and in trust that he has accomplished everything that you need. All you do is trust and walk with him. God, we thank you for this word today. It's hard. It's really hard. And the first part of this text is difficult. But God, we thank you for it, that you don't mess around with us in our faith and our walk with you and our lives, our souls. You take it seriously. You give us serious warnings, serious encouragements, God. I pray we take it to heart, Father. Those who are struggling, they want to give up. They want to let go. Father, they would trust in Jesus even when it's hard. They would trust in Christ even when it looks like it's going to fall apart. You have completed the work for them. Today, they can choose to walk with you, to be as close to you as they can, to trust you for their daily lives, to worship you with their choices. God, those who are here playing a game, I pray that you would convict them. I would say that the hounds of heaven would chase them out of this place and they can't get away from the gospel, the good news of Jesus. You anger, you have anger and you burn against sin, God, but you have grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. You poured your anger on him so that we don't have to experience it. Father, I pray people would call out to Jesus for salvation. Thank you for the good news that we get to celebrate every day. In your name we pray, amen. Guys, thank you for being here. Pastor Jared's got some stuff. I want to encourage you to sign up. Register for worship. We're going to just continue to do this over the next several weeks um, as we kind of make baby steps back in together and people keep trickling back in. Um, it kind of helps us know who's going to be where. So please, please, please register. God bless you guys. Pastor Jared. Just a couple things. Um, so along with one of those is we won't be passing our offering plates for the foreseeable future. So 